Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com. Hey, this is John Heilman, and I am Will Leach. And we're here with the groundbreaking, mold-shattering, expectations-defying, gravity-flaunting. Brain-melting. Brain melting, yeah. Do you flaunt something or do you, I don't know. Anyway, I don't think it's flaunting, right? Maybe it is flaunting. Gravity flaunting, that makes sense. Um, anyway, it's a podcast. It's called Culture Caucus from Bloomberg Politics. And Will and I come here and talk to you about the intersection of politics with everything cultural, entertainment, sports, technology, music, movies, anything. Just, you know, pretty much all the stuff that you really care about in your life that's not. That's not politics. It's not straightforward <laughs> politics. Right. Exactly right. So we're here. We're back uh, for the first time ever. We're experimenting with a new form. And it's a sad form, at least for me personally, because mm. I am sitting in a studio in New York City. And unlike usual, where Will would be here right next to me, I could touch him and gaze longingly into his eyes. He's not here. Mm. He's at home in Athens, Georgia. Will, how are you feeling about that? Well, I'm, I'm I'm split. Emotionally, I'm there with you. But physically, I have to say I'm relieved. It's a little easier to talk to you, no offense, without all the touching. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I, mean- I'm, I am basically a walking HR violation. It's true. Um, so <laughs> the, the, other, the other innovation of our podcast today is we're going to have a guest who's also on the road. That's going to be Jenna Johnson from The Washington Post. She covers Donald Trump. J. Trump billionaire who owns a mansion and a yacht, um, the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. She's out on the campaign trail, so we're going to have Jenna on later to talk about our topic of the day, which is uh, a topic that we've managed somehow to avoid throughout the history of the long and esteemed history of the Culture Caucus so far, which is the intersection of Donald Trump and the mainstream mass media. Um, Maybe the single most important topic of our lifetimes. Wow. Okay. The single most important topic of this cycle, um, which is the way that Donald Trump deals with the press, how he plays them like a Stradivarius, how he occasionally uh, gets up in their grill, um, how the the weird psycho drama, the uh, the whole like uh, kind of dance that goes on between Trump and and the and the media. It's incredibly important to Trump's success, and it's fascinating. Uh, on another level, which is that it's something genuinely new in this campaign. Donald Trump, a new phenomenon, but he brings with him a genuinely new kind of interplay with the press, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, I want, Will, you, if you were looking for this, this podcast, where would you find it? You would be able to find this podcast on Bloomberg Politics. Of course, please come to – you always find it on Bloomberg Politics regularly. You can also subscribe in iTunes if you just go type in Culture Caucus in iTunes. You can subscribe to us there. Also, while you're there, please give us a very nice review. It helps people find the podcast. And Of course, you can also find it on SoundCloud. And also, if you look to your left, to your right, there's a very strong possibility the podcast is right there. You just didn't see us. Right, totally. And you know what's your, what's your Twitter handle, Will? I am at William F. Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H, pronounced Leach like the sucking parasite. Okay, right. So the thing about that is you all got to you all have to follow Will on Twitter because it's a brilliant feed. But also, when there's a new Culture Caucus podcast, Will tends to like you know promote it because he's a shameless self promoter. And if you were inclined, you could also follow me at J Heil at J H E I L, where occasionally there are some things in there that you might really be interested in. Not that often, but every once in a while, I use profanity or something. John Heilman. John Hyman never self-promotes. That is only something that I do. And, uh, and I, I, he's, I'm, I'm a classy self-promoter. John Heilman, John, John Heilman does not promote on, 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 his, on his Twitter. Sad. Sad exclamation point. I'm a, um, I'm a shy and demure fellow, as you know, Will. So let's turn to our topic 
of the day, which is Donald Trump and the media. Will, you wrote a brilliant piece about this. Uh, just, just talk about it, and we'll d- dive right in. Yeah, CNN actually started this, and now everybody does it. Uh, you know, I covered, obviously, I still cover sports. I've covered sports for a long time. And one staple of sports coverage is the post-game interview. Uh, Aaron Andrews, Jim Gray, Craig Sager, you know, after the game or after the half, someone has run off the court or run off the field, done something amazing, and they stick a microphone in the face and say, how did it feel out there? And what's happened with Trump, and, that, you know, we've all watched lots of debates throughout the years, and this is something that's only happened with Trump is after the debate is over, remember, these debates are highly negotiated, highly discussed, much haggled over big media events that, that, you know, we're buzzing. Height of the podiums, you know, what the temperature is going to be in the hall, exactly who gets to speak for how long, will there be cheering, will there not be cheering, all that stuff negotiated to a fairly well. Yes, and like a buzzer if you go too long. And, and I do I get to respond? He said my name and all that back and forth and back and forth. So then and to the point that now media organizations are actually one of the first things they do is tweet out how long everybody spoke. Like it's really that level of a of obsession. But then after these debates, then they'll go and just talk. They'll like, now, oh, we have a post-game interview with Donald Trump. And he will just talk essentially unimpeded for the first debate. I think it was four minutes. Then it was eight minutes. I think the last one was almost 10. Now, the analogy I use for this, this would be like after a Cleveland Cavaliers NBA playoff game, where after the game, Craig Sager goes to interview LeBron James, and while he's interviewing him, he is shooting free throws, and the points actually count in the game that we just watched. I mean, it's really... (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that. Will, right, right? I'm glad you mentioned that because it was the most brilliant thing in that piece of yours. I thought it was kind of incredible because you're basically saying here's here are the candidates who are complaining about like when the when the time count comes out that, you know, Jeb Bush, God rest his soul. Jeb Bush would say, well, I only got six minutes and 47 seconds and Rand Paul got seven minutes and 15 seconds and everyone's counting by the second. But no one takes into account the fact that Donald is getting an extra eight minutes to be on national television, unimpeded, uninterrupted, just free, just free time up there, and only really for him. Yeah, and and no, yeah, exactly. No, there's no candidate saying now, now, Donald, or or Ted, whatever Ted Cruz strategy or Marco Rubio strategy during that time is completely thrown out the window, and and it's really kind of, kind of an amazing. Also, the what's interesting too, the questions actually take the tone of a real post game interview. Like this is not like a sit down with a ser- with a with a, with you know Gary Smith or some serious uh, great sports writer. And not to say that Jake Tapper's not a very good interviewer or that or that Chris Cuomo doesn't do well, but that's not the way these. Interviews are set up. They're set up like a, how'd you feel out there? Who looked good out there? They're set up exactly like sports interviews. So they're not actually difficult questions for him at all. They're basically, I think everybody did great tonight. I, you know, I did real well. He, he'll stick, he'll stick, stick in a little Marco line just for fun. But like they're these simple, very easy questions that are just, here you go. Here, here you go, Donald. Here's the mic. Have eight more minutes. It's really kind of an amazing thing to watch. Well, I'd say something even further about it, just to extend the metaphor. The, the reality is that in a post-game interview, on the especially courtside or uh, uh, along the sidelines, right, that basically those interviews only take place with the winner. You don't. I mean, there are post-game <laughs> press conferences where the losers also get to speak, but generally. If it's a sideline interview, you're talking to LeBron about how he made the three-pointer that won the game. Um, you're talking about to Richard Sherman about his on-field heroics. You know, whatever it is, right? It's it's 
basically consecrating the notion of victory. We are talking now to the victor in the debate. Now, in this case, they don't say that. But the fact that they're giving Trump the time and not giving other people the time implicitly is basically saying we're talking to winner Donald Trump. And we're going to ask him questions about, Donald, just how is it that you kicked everybody's ass so badly tonight? <laughs> Donald, please just tell us about that time when you stuffed Marco Rubio back in his box. Mark, and, and Donald, just in case anyone isn't clear, your dick's really big, right? I mean, just how big, just, I know you said it was big, but really just tell us exactly how big it is. Could you just give us like, get a ruler out, give us some dimensions now, right? That's the kind of question that Trump is getting after these debates. Yeah. And, and, and it's really not really a format where like there's a reason in sports there's not tough questions asked during and in fact in times in the past when people have asked tough questions like when Jim Gray asked Pete Rose about gambling or I believe Jameis Winston was asked by a reporter at ESPN a couple years ago about the rape allegations against him people are very upset they're like leave that off the field that's for the press conference this is all about how the performance they just did which is why I think another reason that not only did these interviews take that format but people watch them that way you're right there is that exact undeniable feel of oh I just watched uh, I just watched him hit the three-pointer and, and do amazing stuff. And I think it speaks to another issue I kind of want to talk about with Trump and the press, which is the idea, you know, you hear politicians talk all the time, uh, people, insiders and, and, and you know, people that work, work with the press often about working the refs. The idea of working the refs and the idea that, you know, uh, no matter what, you work the refs. Well, first off, Trump is brilliant at working the refs. But one of the reasons he's particularly great at working the refs, there is this phenomenon in sports. And social scientists have done studies on this. There's this phenomenon. They were trying to figure out why, even if two teams are evenly matched, why exactly home teams actually win more. And what, like, what, why that would be. And it's not the players. It's actually not the players. The players are generally found to have the same performance on the road as they do on, at home. What the difference is, is the officials. The officials, whether, no matter how professional they are, and these are professional people who work very hard, no matter how professional they are, there's something subconscious and human about having people yelling at you to try to get their way. There's something undeniable about it. Will, have you ever, I, I know you've, you and I have gone to some, some games in Brooklyn together at the Nets Arena. Mm-hmm. And as you know, sitting right behind me um, in my uh, seats, uh, right be- the, the row mm-hmm. behind me is a guy named Richie from New Jersey who's like the loudest person at Barclay Center. And he is brutal. He is brutal with everybody. <laughs> He's bro- I cannot believe that. That cannot happen. He just screams throughout <laughs> the game, right? And Richie mm-hmm. taunts the referees. And I'm convinced that he has given the Nets like a home field edge in exactly the way you're talking about because no ref – no ref at Barclays wants to incur the wrath of Richie. No one. No one does. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's one of a kind. But I do think you're, there's something, you're, something, you're onto something there. Like, the refs, I think, are, you know, the, the crowd gets into the refs' heads as much as the crowd gets into the heads of the visiting team. And I think Trump does the same thing. That is generally what I would argue is, and almost in an interesting kind of way that's, you know, people have talked about Trump being a bully uh, in a lot, or the bullying kind of tactics. I think the way he treats the press is actually more bullying than anything that's happened to Chris Christie. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it because because he's a because cla- he's a classic bully. Because not just does he berate you, but also. Listen, this is happening. I have not actually yet been called out by Donald Trump, but you have, and most people. I feel like I'm actually being a bad journalist that I haven't been called out by him yet. But I, but there is a there has to be an undeniable moment that when he calls you out. It's got to be a little bit of a thrill, like a small, tiny notion that like, even if it's something mean, it's undeniable. This guy, you know, we, we talked about uh, on the Today Show, Matt Lauer, who, you know, I, I think he does. They'll be doing a segment 
about the election that has not that they're mentioning Trump, but they'll be just doing a segment where they're not planning on him having him as a guest. And then he'll call in just randomly because he's a participant in all of this as well. And then they'll and everyone gets very excited. <laughs> everyone gets very excited to have him on. I think there is this notion like any classic bully. Not only does it, he'll punch you. But then, you know, he'll pat your head a little bit and be like, hey, good job, kid. Good job, kid. And so he can punch you again later. That, I think, has happened over and over and over throughout this campaign. There's there's so much to say about that. And there's, you know, the psychology of it. I, of course, have had a complicated relationship with Trump because he used to just absolutely hate me in all instances. And I spent most of 2012 in a giant Twitter war with him for, for like a year. Um, if you were to go back mm-hmm. and actually do search the Twitter archives, you'll find some incredible things about sweaty pathetic loser <laughs> journalist John Heilman desperate to be on TV sad exclamation point I actually just as a, as a parenthetical um, I really think we should all start speaking like the way that Trump tweets I think you know we should all all of our com- communications in the future in the Trump administration will be in the form of a direct a declarative sentence with a lot of abuse in it <laughs> followed by a single word with an exclamation point so it'll be like lily livered pathetic intellectually uh, flaccid sports blogger Will Leach um, pees his pants every time he talks on Culture Caucus podcast. Pathetic! Exclamation point. That's just the only way we'll speak. We're really not that far from it now, John. It's true. That's that's fair enough. Actually, I've been thinking about saying those things to you recently. Um, <laughs> but there is, look, there is a thing, I think. There's no doubt that people get, like, you know, whether Trump is abusing you uh, or whether Trump is in some way suggesting some approval, like, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's always a, a certain kind of, psych, a, a certain kind of psychic exchange going on between a reporter and a candidate. And, and reporters are, that no matter how hard bitten they are and how grizzled, there's still the moment when the candidate calls on you or the moment where you get the big interview or whatever, where there's a little bit of a free song of something. And it's different mm-hmm. what that free song is depending on who the, who the candidate is. Some candidates are decidedly more tedious and some are more boring and some are uh, about to be the next president of the United States and some are Donald Trump. And the possibility, given how volatile Trump is, that at any moment he'll turn on you and start to berate you or start to attack you or make that sad pout face that he does sometimes where he kind of purses his lips and, you know, the whole the whole face just sort of sags, you know, and his face cheeks get red. You see that and you go, wow, I did that. Look at that face, man. That's like, I, that, that's not a normal thing. Nobody makes that face, but I just did that on Donald Trump's face. Um, it's, it's exciting, you know, but if he, if he starts to scowl, you can get a little nervous, you know, there's a lot of different reactions to dealing with Trump. And as I say, partly because the thing you're talking about, which is that he 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 complies with, has no comportment with any of the standard rules that govern the exchanges of candidates and reporters, right? Because he is shameless, like and utterly unconstrained, he doesn't feel he has no problem. Like every most most candidates at some level are afraid to piss off the people who cover them. They're just, you know, the, the, the old ink by the barrel thing, right? You don't want to get into a fight with the people who cover you. And so if you are going to criticize them or chastise them, you do it in a very respectful way. You do it in an implicit way. You don't just come out and say, you're a fucking idiot, right? And Trump effectively <laughs> does that all the time to reporters who cover him. And again, I'll say one last thing about this, um, which is to go back to your debate thing. I think it's, you know, one of the things that our, that our business has been somewhat uh, hip to, somewhat clued in about, but not as fully as they should be, is the extent to which this is all a game for Trump, right, when it comes to how he deals with the press. This working the ref thing that you said, right? Because you think about, you know, Trump, glad he, he's in a debate 
where everybody gangs up on him and where he feels as though, or at least says he feels as though the questions were terribly unfair and all the questions were directed at him and the questions were designed to get people in a fight with him. And then he's doing the sideline interview with the person who was the moderator of the debate. And one or the other, he goes one or the other way. One, one way is, even though he will later be complaining about how unfairly that person treated them in the debate, he's all chummy with them in the sideline interview. It's like, hey, Jake, good to see you. And by the way, again, another aside, I really would like to see, I would really like to see Jake Tapper uh, in the suit um, of uh, Craig, what's his name? Craig, um, uh, the sports guy. Oh, Craig Sager. Craig Sager. Yes. I like that. Craig Sager's. <laughs> Craig Sager's. I'd like to see Craig Sager's clothes on Anderson Cooper or Jake Tapper. That'd be kind of. That'd be kind of fantastic. But you know, he'll basically complain about how unfair the moderators were to everyone. But then he stands there with the moderator, and they're like really good friends. Or he'll stand there with the moderator, and he'll attack the moderator ceaselessly, one or the other. It, but it's all sort of. It's all like totally. Yeah, it, he almost treats it like the old uh, Warner Brothers cartoon with the Wiley with with the with the coyote and the sheepdog, where they just check in and punch each other for 20 minutes and then and then when it's over they, they, go, they go have lunch together and uh there, there is that sense but you know you again you've co- you've covered him closer th- than i have is there you know a lot of people that, that have worked with trump say oh well this is this there's the stage trump and then there's the regular guy trump which to me means maybe he's the best actor in the world <laughs> because uh whatever that person like, if there's really this very measured uh stable uh person behind the scenes I, I, that person doesn't even sneak out. One of the things I always hear about politicians and about the, the act of running for president that's really important is it, it pairs you down to who you are. And it makes you – whoever you are deep down, even if you don't know it, that comes out in a presidential campaign. I'm not sure that's happened to Trump. All right. So, Will, um, let's, let's just take a quick break here um, uh, so we can get our – uh, esteemed guest on the line, Jenna Johnson from the Washington Post. She is out there in campaign land somewhere. We're going to take a pause, take a breath, compose ourselves because we're going to be in the company of genius, um, a great reporter, a great person, a lovely lady, lady Jenna Johnson. We're going to bring her on. So everybody just pause and we'll be right back. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com. And we are back with the Culture Caucus podcast from BloombergPolitics.com. I'm John Heilman. And I am Will Leach still. And I I believe we're about to be joined. We're about to turn this thing into a troika here. I think that we have on the line our guest for today, Jenna Johnson for The Washington Post. Jenna, are you on the line? I sure am. Hey, it's John Heilman here along with... Will Leach. Hello. Hello, Ms. Jenna. Um, Hey, guys. Um, you probably heard the end of this uh, of this discussion, Jenna. We were just talking about uh, this 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 podcast that we're doing here at Culture Caucus is about uh, the way that Donald Trump relates to the press, and we're really like not wanting to have a boring, tedious uh, Pointer Institute discussion here, which is why we got you in because I know personally <laughs> that you are a fun you are a fun person and a great psychoanalyst of Donald Trump and a great observer as well as a participant in this weird uh, relationship that he's established with the press. So I, I want to ask you just to start right. When did you first meet Trump? What's the first event of his that you covered? You know what? I started covering him last September, and I think one of the very first events that I went to with him was at the Oklahoma State Fair, and there was this big amphitheater um, near the fairgrounds where he did this rally. And I remember um, kind of being in the wrong place, and there was like a line of people waiting to get in, (laughs) 
and thinking, well, this isn't that many people. Um, you know, maybe his summer bubble has burst. Um, and then I realized I was in the wrong place, and I came around uh, the band shell, and there were thousands and thousands of people assembled waiting to hear him speak. Um, and this was a day where he had a live bald eagle on the stage. He had, um, uh, you know, celebrities from television were, were there. Um, you know, he made all sorts of interesting um, comments. And it really was um, just that setting and that day and that crowd. It really was an introduction into um, just what these rallies are like and, and what he's like as a candidate. Right. Um, that is a that is I mean again I think for a lot of reporters um, had who who got thrown on the Trump beat you suddenly arrive you're like wow this is not like any other candidate I've ever covered before in my life um, what what just just yeah you know, we were just Will and I were just talking about the about this strange um, about the, the fact that Trump basically deals with reporters in a direct way, deals with them in a way that like no other candidate ever does, right? Because most candidates are ultimately kind of afraid of us and the, the damage we can do to them. And so even when they're mad at us, they more or less try to restrain themselves. They, they are constrained by, by uh, probity, by fear of consequence, and by um, decorum, uh, and, and, and some, in some cases, shame. Trump is not constrained by any of those things. And so just, I just give me a sense of, of you know, your... How, how he is related to you. Have you have experiences where he's been mad at you? Um, what does it feel like when he turns on you or when he turns to you? Like, just, just kind of give us a sense of like what the psychology is of how you relate to him in a, in a semi-personal, although of course professional way. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a guy with two very extreme extreme. Um, when you first start covering him and um, you know, you do a story that he likes, um, he, he will, you know, get a big black Sharpie marker and autograph your article and have it sent to you, you know, <laughs> telling you what an amazing, great reporter you are and that you get it. Um, you know, early on in covering him, I had written a story about uh, his super fans, these people who had never been involved with politics before, but were traveling from rally to rally to see him. And um, I actually got invited backstage at one of his rallies after that story ran that he could personally thank me for what a, an amazing story it was. Um, and his kindness can almost be uncomfortable, especially for a reporter um, who's used to having, um, you know, politicians not compliment you on anything that you do, even when you do a story that they like. Um, you know, the flip side of that is that when you do something that he really doesn't like, um, he'll call out reporters, Sometimes from the rally stage, he'll point um, to people who are sitting back in the press area or he'll go on Twitter and name people, um, you know, kind of directing all of his followers to just make their feed hell for a few days. Um, you know, personally, I um, haven't seen the blowback that um, a lot of other reporters have, um, but he definitely plays this good cop, bad cop. Um, you know, you get me. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm so disappointed in you. You let me down. And a lot of reporters, we just don't really know what to do with this. <laughs> it's a really, it's an interesting, it's an interesting situation to be in. And quite honestly, when, when I'm in it, I often just don't know how to react <laughs> and often try to play down how good my article was or deflect, uh, deflect that attention because, um, because it's just, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's just so overwhelming. 
Yes, I, 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 it must be incredibly strange. I mean, I will say that that I was at a Trump press conference. I'm not sure if you were there. The one that he did uh, in Charleston or North Charleston, South Carolina, right after the that that one South Carolina debate. It was the the event uh, where he. Uh, it was the it was the morning that George W. Bush was coming down to campaign for Jeb Bush, and I and I was oh rel- right, I missed that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, I sat there and he did this thing with 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 me that just totally freaked me out. Where he not only called on me four times in the course of the press conference, but kept talking, kept mentioning my name while answering other people's questions. So he would say things like, you know, you'd be surprised at how many establishment big figures in the establishment you, you have called me up and said privately to me that they support me. You'd be surprised. Heilman wouldn't believe it. Heilman wouldn't believe it. I'm like, stop. I'm like, stop talking about me. Stop talking about me in front of all these it's other reporters. It's because you're a big deal. It's because you're a superstar. You know, he, he gravitates to the big personalities in political reporting. And a lot of prominent journalists have that same experience, uh, much to the frustration of trail reporters uh, with less prominence <laughs> who uh, don't don't get caught on at all. <laughs> I know. I'm just saying it made me. I, I'm fully aware of that dynamic. I'll say, and and it may, that's part of why it made me feel like really uncomfortable. I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to come to these anymore because I really don't want this to be uh, even a pseudo colloquy <laughs> between me and Donald Trump. Um, hey, Will, um, why, do you have a question yeah. for Jenna? I, I want to. Uh, after after, after I, Will asked this question, I want to come around to some relatively some of the more serious and less lighthearted things that have been going on in the campaign trail lately, Jenna. But I'm going to let Will ask what I'm sure will be a delightful question now. No, actually, my actually kind of leads into that a little bit uh, is the notion of, you know, I covered the I was at his rally in Mobile way back in way back, way back, like like when the first polls had come out and all people were realizing, wow, there's a ton of people coming to these things. And he was like, you know, there was there was no pin for journalists. We were able to go out and talk to people in the crowd comfortably. He seemed to just love the adulation. I joked, I think, in my piece that that he the 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 thing that he imagines in his brain for his entire life has been thirty thousand people cheering his name, and this is one of the first times that he actually had it happen. <laughs> and he actually came out and had all that. He clearly was just in a wonderful mood and having a blast. It was friendly to the press, and 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 really just had a great time with it. It doesn't seem to be like that anymore. How have you seen the reaction that Trump from the crowds and the way that he goads uh, the the press at these rallies? You've been covering him for a while. How has that changed and progressed uh, as you've been doing it? Well, you know, for a long time, he has made comments about the press. You know, he's pointed back at us and said, you know, the scum back there, the bloodsuckers, the most dishonest people that you know. And at most rallies, he kind of has a breakdown of um, percentages of the press. You know, X percent is really, really good. Uh, They're wonderful. They're terrific. Um, You know, 50 percent is terrible. Uh, You know, this percent. And at each rally, those percentages kind of shift and uh, kind of indicate how he's feeling about the press. um, It's like the Trump Trump mood Um, ring. It's like the Trump mood ring. (laughs) Right. Right. But, you know, in the last. In the last week or so, I mean, his public comments have have kind of been the same that way. Um, I mean, he's been having almost weekly press conferences um, to talk to reporters um, about um, election night results and and things like that. So in a way, um, the general press corps has actually had more access to him in the last couple of weeks. Um, But, I mean, the mood overall at the rallies has gotten really intense. Um, And... Uh, we're seeing, seeing many more protesters than we've ever seen before. Um, 
and uh, they're clashing with people who are at these rallies. Um, and the ultimate example of this is what happened in Chicago on Friday night. Um, and the media has been covering that, and Donald Trump has been very critical of how the media has been covering that. Um, and so that's that's the latest big fight that uh, you know is going on between you know reporters sitting at the back of an arena and the candidate standing at the front. You know, Jenna, it's, it, you know, having done this for a while, you know, I, I've been, this is, um, the, 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 there are several things worth saying, I think. I mean, one of which is that um, if you put aside the question of uh, Trump's uh, encouragement and in, in some cases, I think, incitement of uh, his fans to how they should deal with protesters. And, and obviously, when I say we should put that aside, I'm saying let's put it aside momentarily just for the purposes of this discussion mm-hmm. because it's it's obviously, I think, one of the most troubling things about Trump right now, and it's one of the things that's giving people a lot of pause. There's a separate thing, which is the thing that you just alluded to, which is the way that Trump talks about the press. Now, I have there's been on the Republican side, there's been a lot among Republican voters, a lot of uh, – anger towards the liberal media or the mainstream media for a long time. And I have been, like every reporter I know who's covered politics for a long time, have been yelled at, screamed at, uh, taunted, cursed at by uh, voters at Republican events for 20 years. That's not new. Um, what is new mm-hmm. is is having a candidate who says the things that you uh, that you say that and that Trump does say, right? Where he says, you know, I hate the press and he calls them scum. And he, again, kind of incites the crowd to be, uh, to, to, to he preys on something that the crowd already feels, a lot of conservatives who feel like the, the press are all scum. So that's, I think, a new thing. And, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm much more concerned with the safety of protesters than I am with the safety of the press because, Although the you know we various complaints about it being penned up at Trump events, the truth is that I think the press is generally pretty safe, and the Secret Service is there, and I'm not that worried about reporters. Although it is the case that at least in one instance, a, a Time magazine photographer um, got uh, sl- put in a chokehold and thrown on the ground recently. But the question I want to ask you, again, I'm more concerned about the protesters than I am about the press. But as a member of the press, do you feel safe at these events? And to the extent that you uh, that, 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 that how, how has that changed over time? Have you felt increasingly, uh, uh, like there's been a more and more, uh, uh, t- the taunts and attacks and verbal stuff thrown at you over time. And again, just, do you basically at this point sort of feel pretty safe? Do you feel is it awkward, uncomfortable? Like just, just, just describe your experience with this phenomenon. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, for me personally, I've been to dozens and dozens of these rallies over the past few months, and I feel safe. Um, uh, even at rallies that are out of control, um, I feel like um, I can leave the safety of the press pen and go out and be in the crowd, and I might get jostled or, or pushed around, um, but that um, I won't be targeted <laughs> or, or won't be physically harmed. Um, you know, in Chicago, we did have um, one of the reporters who's part of our group, um, Sohan Deb from CBS, uh, was arrested while he was doing his job. And I watched the footage of that from Friday night. And it really surprised me because, um, you know, reporters have been able to, um, I had never felt like something like that could happen to me. Um, you know, a- along with, um, 
the time photographer who got um, attacked, basically, got into an altercation um, with a Secret Service agent. That really surprised me. Um, all of the Secret Service agents that I've worked with personally um, are very professional, are very trained. They stay out of handling protesters. They let local police and private security deal with that. Um, and so my experience might not be the experience of everyone, um, but I, I personally feel safe. And I wouldn't have said that um, several months ago. <laughs> um, you know, when I first started covering Donald Trump, he didn't have Secret Service protection. Right. And we would have these big rallies with, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And, you know, there was security, but people were not being screened coming in. And um, Trump volunteers would even comment to me that they felt a little nervous that there wasn't more security there just because he had become such a prominent figure. Um, he ended up getting Secret Service protection in early November. Um, and to be honest, you know, I've felt much safer ever since then. Um, you know, as far as attacks on the media, um, you know, just like your experience over <laughs> many, many years, um, you know, it's it's here, in, you know, at a rally, someone might run, walk past the press tent and, um, you know, shout out something or say something mean and then keep going into the crowd. Um, but when I'm out in the crowd going from person to person and interviewing them, um, people are often very excited to be interviewed, um, very excited that they're that someone wants to know their opinions on, on what's going on. So I would say it's very rarely that um, I run into someone who wants to um, get into, you know, into a fight with right. me. And, and my thing is I just walk away. Right. <laughs> I yeah. don't, I don't engage in those. Yes. I think I, I, I think it would be it probably that's is the wise course. I'm going to ask you one more question and then let will ask you one more and then we'll let you go. Um, just in terms of the Chicago thing. And again, this goes to our a kind of broader theme that we've been talking about here, which is Trump's, you know, it's a persistent theme in this nomination fight, which is just Trump's mastery of, of media and mastery of these moments. Um, again, whether you like him or don't like him, you have to take your hat off to him in terms of how he plays the press. The, there was a, there's a theory now going around about Chicago, about what happened on Friday night, and the theory has been espoused by everyone from Bill Daly, um, uh, the former White House chief of staff, um, who's obviously one of the one of the Daily Brothers in Chicago, and, and now has been amplified by Joe Scarborough, um, the host of Morning Joe in the Washington Post, your paper yesterday, which is the notion that that the Chicago rally on Friday night was a was a media uh, was a, a purposefully. Uh, let's try to be clear about this. The argument is that Trump held that rally in a place where he knew there would be hostility, in order to uh, create a diversion um, for. The press that they would it would it would inevitably would be there would be conflict and it would soak up a lot of media attention uh, in case the things hadn't gone well for him at the debate on Thursday night. Um, uh, obviously, it got out of hand um, and 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 did not necessarily go as planned according to this theory. But that there's no way that Trump would have not understood that going to the University of Chicago, Illinois. Um, in a very diverse campus background, in a big northern, uh, mid, big, big northern city, big industrial place with a very, as I say, very diverse crowd, that that wouldn't be provocative. Do you have any sense, uh, on the basis of either reporting or instinct, whether there's anything to that theory? Um, you know, I, I haven't seen or heard anything that that proves that proves that theory. Um, but I would say this isn't the first time that Donald Trump has held 
a rally in a place where Republicans usually don't hold rallies. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the list of places where he has gone, um, he goes to a lot of blue places, um, especially working class ones. Um, he goes to places where there's a sizable minority population and where there might be some white residents who, um, you know, feel like they've been let down and who might be placing that blame on uh, minorities living in their communities. Um, you know, he likes, he likes protesters. <laughs> he likes having his rally interrupted here and there and to be able to stand on the stage and um, order, you know, a liberal protester to be taken out, taken out of the rally um, and to kind of show, you know, this is how I treat people who um, push back on, on what I'm saying. Um, I'm, I'm in control here. Um, you know, occasionally we'll have rallies where there aren't any protesters and he'll actually comment on how there aren't any protesters there and how maybe he should pay some to be there. Um, you know, so, you know, for a while now, you know, part of his thing has been having rallies where there's tension, where there, where there is protest, where people can see it. Um, you know, Chicago, though, went above and beyond um, anything that we've seen at, at any of these other rallies. Jenna, you've obviously you've been covering politics for a while, and you covered Scott Walker before this, which, frankly, temperamentally seems perhaps to be the exact opposite of covering Donald Trump. Is this more fun? Like, I, I mean, as a reporter and as as, as professionally exciting, because one of the things I find fascinating about watching people cover Trump is there's this notion of, oh, this this this. Oh, he's such a fascinating character, and yet there's this fe- there's almost this danger and this ominous to him. But there's an excitement. Like, do you find him more like professionally an entertaining and fulfilling person to cover, more or less, or the same as perhaps people you've covered in the past? Yeah, I mean, we're journalists. Um, we want to be covering the biggest story of the day. Um, we go crazy when. A candidate gives the same speech over and over and over and over and over again, and our only job is finding, you know, the tiny inconsistencies or the one new sentence that we can do a headline on. Um, I mean, covering Trump is unlike anything. Um, you know, it's unpredictable. Um, it's, you know, he sparked a movement that involves, you know, all of these people across the country, all of whom have their own stories. Um you know, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it is, um, it is fun. It is interesting. Um, it is, you know, I mean, when I am back in DC and, and go to a party or have dinner with friends, um, they're mo- much more interested in hearing about my job now than when I was covering <laughs> Scott Walker. <laughs> yeah, we'll, just, we'll just put it that way. <laughs> Um, Jenna, you're totally great, and and I'll I'll just I'll end this just by saying it's, it seems to me one of the things that that you, what you were just saying, and, and this is just, just one of the things I I think is just a reality is that, and it goes back to also to something we were talking about about Trump, you know Trump has lately in, in the wake of Chicago he's been saying well you know my rallies are love fests and the one place and people are kind of like you know caca skeptical eyebrow at that when you see protesters being. Um, sucker punched and some of the other things we've seen. But in one respect, I think Trump is right. And I do think that it is a love fest between uh, between him and the press. And I think it works in both directions. I do think that the press, it's not to say that the press don't hold him accountable and can are not tough on him. And you certainly are. But 
you know, every reporter I know enjoys covering Trump for the reasons you just said, that it's just it's more unpredictable. He's the biggest story. He's a huge personality. Um, it just it's more it's just fascinating in a, in a political universe where a lot of things are gray. He is technicolor. And so that is more fun to cover. And I think the, the on the other side, you know, for all of Trump's inveigh against the press and all the times in which he says they're scum and he says they're horrible, he loves the press. I mean, just loves them. And and not only because they're doing his bidding in a lot of cases and he feels as though they're an instrument to be manipulated, but also I just think he really likes reporters, you know, at deep down. And so it's like one of the most fraudulent aspects of Trump's campaign is his attacks on, the, on people in the press because you know that he's an obsessive consumer of media. He's an obsessive student of media. He knows who all these reporters are. He knows the stuff they've written. He knows what they've said about them on TV. He just, he's like a sponge for the press. And and as I say, he's got, you know, he I think he delights in some ways. Even when he's trashing them, he sort of delights in, in them and, and he wants their approval. So it's a, it is, there's a love fest quality to this whole thing, which some may find quite disturbing, but I think is a fundamental truth of what's been going on from the very beginning with Trump. Yeah. And, and I would just add to that. Um, I mean, the, the past two months especially have um, also pushed a lot of organizations you can't just do, you know, the responsible way to cover Donald Trump is not making listicles of funny things that he has said. Right. Um, I mean, this is a serious candidate for president, and he's on his way to very likely being the Republican nominee. And, um, you know, amid all of the fun and, and the jokes and things like that, he said he's taken a lot of um, stances and put out a lot of policy ideas um, that are you know, have a lot of questions raised by them. And, um, you know, part of what the press needs to be doing is really digging into to what those are and um, continuing to try to get in questions at, at press conferences and, and things like that. Um, you know, so while this job is fun, um, there's also, um, you know, a, a great responsibility here for reporters like me and others um, to really fully report on who this candidate is and what he would do as president. Um, it is a great responsibility. And Jenna, I can say, having been a, a, an avid follower of your work, that you have met it admirably so far. And um, I can't, to anybody who happens to be listening to this podcast, all three of you, um, please make sure. Okay, the, the producers are yelling at me now. There's more than three. Let's too be, kind. Let's, too kind. Everybody, every, <laughs> every, too kind. Anybody, who, anybody <laughs> who wants to follow the doings of Donald Trump on the campaign trail, there is literally no one better to follow than Jenna Johnson of The Washington Post. Jenna, thank you for being with us here on Culture Caucus. And Will, you know what? We're, yes, running, we're, we're running out of time. So much genius packed into one episode is bursting out of the seams. Yeah, and that's the thing. God, God, I could just keep talking to you for, for hours, days, Will. We should do a marathon Culture Caucus at some point where we just see how long we can keep talking. The producers here are having coronaries right now as I say that, but I think it's really, we should experiment with the long-form podcast model, see if we could talk for like six hours straight about like anything that happens to pop into our heads. That sounds fun. I, I'm okay with it, but I bet, I bet they're not. Um, hey, so Will Leach, this, this podcast, Culture Caucus, where can you where, where can someone find this podcast if they were looking for it? Oh, I, the best way. There are many ways to find it. You can find it, of course, on Bloomberg Politics. Uh, you can also find it on iTunes if you search Culture Caucus. And if you, while you're on iTunes, please give us a nice review. It makes it easier for people to find the podcast. You can also find and subscribe to us on SoundCloud. So come to all of those places. We are there for all of you. We are back on regular schedule now. We had a delay. We are back. You are going to be so sick of us. And by sick of us, I mean begging for more. Yeah, you know what? And I, if I'm right, and I don't want to tease anybody too much, but I believe it's possible that there may be, after this, a new Culture Caucus podcast even sooner than people would have ever been 
normally led to believe. I won't. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, and I don't want to set any dates because God knows the whole thing could just implode. But we have big plans for getting another one of these podcasts up after this one, very very soon. So excited. There's a culture. There's a culture caucus behind you right now. Oh my God! Look, don't look in the rearview mirror. Objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear. That's it for me, John Heilman, and. Will Leach, here at Culture Caucus, have a great day. Bye, everyone. Brought to you by Oppenheimer Funds, the right way to invest. Explore long-term opportunities at oppenheimerfunds.com.